Dotnet Rocks, episode 1020, with guest Seth Juarez. Recorded Tuesday, August 5th, 2014. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's .NET Rocks. Indeed. We're back. We're and back. better than ever. And better. We're, we're, I feel like we're hitting a stride now that hasn't been seen since the days of Rory. I don't so know. It's taken me 900 shows to get competent. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I said we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's mostly our guests, I think. We've had some just absolutely amazing shows lately. Yeah. And then there's this one. Yeah. No. <laughs> now, you know what it is? It, you're right. It's an exciting time in computing, right? The, the yeah. disruptions are coming to be really cool. The disruptions are getting out of hand, and and it's too much to ignore. Uh, the IoT stuff in particular is just amazing to me. And uh, it's big. It's getting big. Things are looking up. That's what I'm saying. Yep. And uh, speaking of things looking up, let's roll that crazy music Known as the Better Know Framework theme. Nice. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, I have a word of warning. Oh. Actually, it's a phrase of warning. Stay away from Buffalo hard drives. What? Yeah. Uh, It's really my experience with an external hard drive. Tinyurl.com slash no more buffalo. And it probably isn't in you know just about buffalo but it's about these external drives that you get in enclosures you know the three terabyte drives or the two terabyte drives and you get them in an enclosure with a usb3 connector and sometimes and i don't know which is which but the one that i bought actually was it was a buffalo drive station axis velocity external three terabyte hard drive Basically, um, I had errors on this hard drive, and it didn't sound or feel or smell like your classic disk error. It didn't sound like bad sectors. There was no tick, 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 tick. There was no retry. There was no, you know, hey, you've got bad sectors. Let me fix that for you. Right. Nothing of the kind. It's just that when I tried to copy a file from here to the Richard, do you remember when we were recording Ted Pattison's show? And all of a sudden, it stopped. Yeah. And I said... That's never happened before. Audition just stopped. Hmm. And then I tried to copy the files, and they weren't copying. Do you remember that? And I said, you know what? I'm just going to start a whole new project, and then we'll deal with the files as we can. Turns out there's proprietary software that sits on a controller board between the drive and the OS. And the guy at the Oliver Group that restored the hard drive for me, because I actually had to have it professionally restored. Wow said they've even seen it cook the hard drives to the point of physical damage. And he told me, stay away from these drives. And it's not, Buffalo doesn't make the hard drive, they make the enclosure and the controller. That's right. It's a Seagate drive. Right. It's a good drive. And I found out about this by ripping apart the enclosure and sticking the hard drive itself in a dock, and Windows like, I don't know what that is. (laughs) What is that? That's a new drive to me. Right. So it it had a totally unique format on it. Totally unique format. So recreating the file system or something like that or interpreting the file system just leads to trouble. So beware. And on another note, if you want really, really big drives, uh, Azure has this thing called Store Simple. Have you heard of this? Yeah. Yeah, you probably talked about it on Run Eyes Radio, but 
But I think it's worth talking about here really quick. Uh, if you go to tinyurl.com slash Azure Big Storage, <laughs> I have to be creative with the tiny URLs. Later. Yeah, you get, you're starting to stretch them out. <laughs> I know. Uh, so this is Store Simple Hybrid Cloud Storage. They basically have a device that's uh, a network attached storage or a SAN, a NAS. We call that a NAS or a SAN. 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 Big. And it connects to the cloud. So it, it's a hybrid backup to Azure kind of thing as well. It does it, you know, it does your classic storage on site, but then it backs everything up in the cloud and allows you to retrieve it. Oh, and this is actually made by Store Simple. Yeah. So this is a, a dedicated hardware device. Right. And, uh, and it happens to have software built into it to sync to Azure. Absolutely. And all you got to do is when you uh, have an Azure account, you go in there and you create an, a, a manager for it and boom, you're done. You connect it, bing, bada, bing. So that's a, a really good solution for people struggling with massive amounts of data and they don't want to have to worry about backups and all of that. It's cool. Yeah, it's cool. And it's worth talking about. So two hard drive stories, one good, one not so good. Yeah, no kidding. Well, two storage stories. Two storage stories. Yeah. Richard, who's That's talking fun. to us, man? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of an ancient, ancient show, show 643. Good Lord, who is that with? Yeah, way back. This guy, this weird guy, his name is Seth Juarez. <laughs> and he had this other weird guy with him named Mark Miller. What could go wrong? Oh, man, that was a weird show. I, that was the show where we did. they did the whole thing with the Kinect. They were out of their minds. They were out of their minds. And, yeah, and, they were writing Visual Studio Code with Kinect. Right. That's back in 2011. So I am dipping back three years ago. Because the comment that I found in this, I, I couldn't resist. This is from Chris. Christopher, who said, I was listening to show 643 when Seth decided that the NP complete problems were, quote, not interesting. <laughs> what? <laughs> NP complete problems. That's non-deterministic polynomial time problems. Oh, you guys and your math. <laughs> well, there's a, in computational theory, there's a bunch of different areas. There are NP right. complete problems. There are NP hard problems. There are P problems. Like, And so Christopher's uh, taking task with Seth over this. He <laughs> says, I completely understand his perspective. But for some of us, MPC and MP hard optimization problems are the bread and butter of providing value to our employers. Wow. Think hard. Think about big data and analytics. Like this is exactly what this is. This is the math side of those tasks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kind of like in the math world, linear programming and simplex method might be old, but it served us well to help win World War II, and it might be a decent show. Just saying. Mm. And caffeinatedly yours. Hint, hint. <laughs> That's from Chris. So, I don't know. You know, I tend to agree. There's nothing wrong with, with MP-complete problems, but I suspect that Seth will have an opinion of it that we can make fun of. <laughs> He's just kicking you today, Seth. Yep. Just poke it away. Poke it away. <laughs> I can't Ouch. wait to hear what Seth comes back with. Poke it away. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for your comment. At .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, for Windows Phone 7 and 8, for Windows 8, and for iOS. And that brings us to Seth. Seth Juarez holds a master's degree in computer science, where his field of research was AI specifically in the realm of machine learning. Seth is the analytics program manager for DevExpress, where he specializes in products dealing with data analysis, shaping, and presentation. When he's not working in that area, Seth devotes his time to an open-source machine learning library 
specifically for .NET, intended to simplify the use of popular machine learning models, as well as complex statistics and linear algebra. Welcome back, Seth. Hey, thanks for having me. Speaking of disruptions, here I am. (laughs) So I was at the vSIP conference at Microsoft not that long ago. Was it last week? And Seth was literally sitting right in front of me. And we had a little chat about, oh, we got to do this show around machine learning because he really is an expert. Yeah. And so I said, fine, send me an email and we'll get this sorted out. And so he literally sent, turned around, sent the email right then. And then I replied with, who is this? And I giggled like a schoolgirl. It was yeah. fantastic. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you've put a lot of time and effort into this um, library, this open source library. What's it called? It's called New ML. Okay. Uh, before we get there, I'd like to sort of respond a little bit. I think you should. I di- yeah, I didn't mean that MP problems are uninteresting in terms of how you solve them. What I meant was there are a set of techniques that have already been used to solve them, which to me are uninteresting. Right. Does that make sense? It's it's not that it's not necessarily the problems are not cool and that we it's just that I like to go into areas where, well, this hasn't really quite been done yet. So let's try that kind of craziness. Mm. Now, MP problems are actually all throughout machine learning. And so for me to say that they're not interesting would kind of be a disservice to the field that I particularly enjoy. Mm. I think in this case, Miller and I were arguing about he wanted to make a new algorithm for like making elevators more efficient because I think we were stuck in an elevator once or we had to wait for an elevator. And I said, Miller, that problem has already been solved. It's not interesting. (laughs) Gotcha. And so that's what I meant by it. But I, because I could come off as kind of a tool like saying, you know, MP problems are, well, that's they so are last year. That is mathematician chest thumping. That's what that is. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's not what I meant because I am by far not the most expert when it comes to math or machine learning. Or I know grammar. A thing, yeah, or grammar. <laughs> I know a thing or two about a thing or two. Yeah. So that, yeah. Well, and, and you know, I appreciate your commitment to the space. You have slugged away at trying to make machine learning more digestible for us mortals for a long time. And I really appreciate that because it is it is not an easy area to work in. You know, and that's that's probably the, the biggest misconception. Now, I will admit, I started, I think it was four years ago at CodeStock. My first talk on machine learning was somewhere in the order of like two and a half hours and I went at it from a purely academic perspective, meaning I got all mathy, and people were uh, scared. <laughs> he got all mathy all over the place. <laughs> I got it on my shoes. Got it on the floor. They had to bring in the cleaning people. It was pretty bad. I love mathy. <laughs> uh, you know, when I talk to students about computer programming and try to encourage them, I said, it's not mathy. Don't worry. It's not mathy. And see, mathiness, I think should have like a show devoted to itself because <laughs> for me, like I did, I took a design course. That stuff is really mathy to me too. Mm-hmm. I mean, just color theory in and of itself. Or if you're a musician, that's mm. very mathy too. We're getting sure. into some serious, like just to remove that's, noise from a wave, that's some serious mathiness. It is mathiness. But you know what? Just you have to be able to bridge the gap between your left and your right brain in order to see the mathiness of it. I mean, you can get along in music without ever thinking about uh, an operator at all. 
you know? And and that's the road that I've been taking with machine learning. If you've seen my talks over the years, like I haven't been like sort of drawing from the same well. The, the concepts that I've been drawing from are the same, but my approach to them is very different, right? I, I talk about it more from a problem perspective as opposed to let's just look at the thing, right? Because mm -hmm. people were having a hard time understanding why would I even use this? Okay. Well, and that's the whole challenge here is to make that stuff digestible. Like, no, everybody gets the idea, I want to do noise reduction. When you say you want to apply a fast Fourier transformation to a waveform, you're just going to scare people. Mm. That is scary. Even though that's what musicians are doing when they're taking, or what I do when I take noise out of a particular recording that I do. Right. That's exactly what we do. We just, you know, we don't always know what's going on under the hood. It's like driving a car, right? You can drive it without understanding auto mechanics. But I, I want to talk about your library for a little bit. And then uh, also, are you prepared to talk about what Azure is uh, offering in the Absolutely. machine learning? Because I figured that's, you know, part and parcel of what we're going to talk about. But uh, let's start with your library. How long have you been working on it? And what, what does it do? It's been about four years, and the idea is that most people, when we're talking about uh, machine learning, uh, the the science really gets down the fundamental. It's I've always liked to call it like glorified counting, mm -hmm. and, and that's what it is. But in order to do that, you have to sort of transform what we understand, like for example, a table of uh, students into math, which is a uh, vectors and, and matrices. And then we do, we, do, we do a lot of linear algebra on that. And so what my library does is it takes a standard table and it will convert it into a matrix with a bunch of assumptions. And then it will run all the algorithms on it to produce models. And then you can use those models with regular rows from your particular database or your record or your I enumerable of T. And so my library, what it does, is it sort of bridges the gap between what we understand as data, as computer science, not as computer scientists, but as programmers, your journeyman programmer that I like to be, and it converts that into math, and then it generates the models, and then it lets you sort of use those models to do prediction. Okay. And that's really what machine learning is all about, looking at patterns uh, that exist in, uh, exist in the data and uh, sort of... Uh, teasing them out to make predictions about the future. Absolutely. Now, the thing about machine learning is it, it's not just about predictions. There's two sort of areas of machine learning. Mm -hmm. The first is supervised learning that deals specifically with predictions, meaning that you have a you want to get a yes or a no from the computer, or you want to get a, a yes, no, or file not found, which is the fa our favorite enum that I've seen out there in the wild, mm -hmm. or you want to... <laughs> <laughs> or you want to get or you want to get sort of a number like a regression and so that's supervised learning. Unsupervised learning is all about compressing data down into digestible bits. So say for example, you have a million billion customers and you want to know like you get a new customer and you want to know what to recommend to them when they go to your website. Well, in order to to do that, you have to sort of compress the space of customers down to figure out which customers the new customer is most like and then you can say oh since he's like this set of people these set of people always choose these things so we'll recommend that that's an unsupervised learning approach to actually doing machine learning which sort of compresses things down into digestible bites yeah that's a whole lot of 
whole lot of prejudice going on in there by those machines. Those I those know. machines are doing uh, profiling on us. <laughs> I, I don't are. know how I feel about that, Mr. Juarez. Well, I will <laughs> tell you that Amazon profiles me pretty good. I mean, I go yeah. there and they say, ooh, I, I want that too. And I do want that, actually. Yeah, agreed. Um, before the show started, I went to Azure and I created a machine learning account. And it took me wow. about five seconds. Yes. And uh, now I'm at some screen that um, is a, the machine learning studio. And right. there's a bunch of videos and there's samples and user guides and uh, additional resources and experiments and web services. It looks all very cool and I can't wait to play. What am I going to see up here? What am I going to experience? That is a great question. Now, let me let me contrast what I've done with with what they've done, right? Okay. Clearly, they have more resources, more developers. It's just me writing this this other thing. But imagine imagine if you want to do things locally on your machine and you just want to run some quick models using .NET, the best thing to do is to just go to NuGet and download my library and try it out because all the data is local to your machine. All mm. the computing power is local to your machine. Now, say you have a lot of data and it's mostly in the cloud in Azure, or you can move it to the cloud, then I would definitely use the new machine learning stuff for Azure because now you're not constrained by space or computational power, which is pretty fantastic. Mm. And so the the thing to do is that you when you create sort of a workspace on uh, on Windows Azure for machine learning, what you're really doing is you're creating sort of this playground where you can do a lot of uh, testing and, and validating your data. Now, I will tell you, my library doesn't do a lot of the stuff that theirs does, and I'll explain it in a little bit. So let me tell you what that is. When you're looking at actually using data, my library assumes that you're giving it good data. That mm -hmm. is almost never the case. You might have missing values <laughs> right. or you might have a lot of noise. And so what machine learning for Azure does is it creates sort of this Windows workflowy thing right. where you can create a series of steps to pull data in to transform it, to clean up missing values, to clear out noise. And then you can sort of push that into some standard models that we all know and love, like maybe decision trees or, or, or perceptron or some kind of neural network. And so they're actually doing a lot more on the data cleansing side, as well as on the other side, which is, well, now I want to use this model. How do I use it in my code? And so it's actually... It's pretty cool the way they've they've gone through and sort of done this Windows workflow yeah. where you can sort of mix and match a number of models. What what I wanted to do with my library is what they eventually ended up doing. I wanted to create sort of like this path where your data sort of starts at the left with your regular data tables, and then it it goes through and it cleanses out some values, it takes out columns, pulls out rows finds which columns are more important, and then it pushes it into models, then it scores it, and then you can sort of use the models to do some code. And, and they've actually done that. And there's a lot of examples, too. If you just look at the samples, their experiments that they've done as samples with sample data, and you can see these, these flow charts just whizzing all over the place with items like project columns, metadata editor, split, add columns, remove duplicate rows, Split again, join again, you know, join uh, two branches into a single, add rows. 
Um, it's pretty cool. I mean, and, and beyond that, yeah. One of the things that that I I failed to mention is uh, we need to look at the beginning, right? Because I think I have I have done the error of of talking about this thing too abstractly. Mm-hmm. So let's let's put a formal problem sure. and let me let me take you through how you can use Azure machine learning to actually solve this problem and use code to actually do predictions. So let's but before I, we do I, that, I need to say that if you're an experienced developer or project manager looking for a change of pace, consider working with me and my world-class team at AppV Next building the next generation Internet of Things and NUI apps. So if you're in, check out appvnext.com, then go ahead and send me a resume. All right, Seth, go for it. So let's do, the, let's do that. Let's pretend you work for a mortgage company. Let's say you're Quicken Loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going to happen is you're going to get lots of applications. And the riskiest thing for a mortgage company to do is to give a mortgage to someone who won't pay it back or defaults. It's a pretty standard problem with mortgage companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, Quicken Loans has a database of I don't know how many records of people that have faithfully paid and that have not paid. Mm-hmm. And so they have data that will tell them when they have paid and when they have it. Now, the problem is uh, most people attach credit score to that. And it, it might be that some guy was hard on his luck and or some gal just – was hard on her luck and she got a new job or he got a new job and everything's looking up. We want to be able to invest in them too because we want to get a good return on investment. So the problem is this. We have a lot of records. We want to know if they'll be faithful in paying or they'll default. One of the things that we assume is that there's only a certain number of indicators that will tell us whether that they will default or not. But the fact of the matter is there might be a whole set of indicators. And, and think of those as the columns. So for one column, it would be your credit score. Another column would be maybe where you live. Another column may be, I don't know, how much debt you already have. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so once you have these uh, number of columns, it, it might be easy to do in our mind to look at it in an Excel spreadsheet if we only have like 100 rows and maybe five to 10 columns. We can sort of figure it out with Excel. Once you start to have like 1,500 columns and 20 million rows, it's better to let the computer do that. Right. So imagine you have on-premises, you have all of this data and you want to make it accessible to do machine learning on Azure. So there's a problem. How do we move all that data over to Azure? Well, you have a couple of options. You can move it into blob storage or you can have it in SQL Azure. Uh, machine learning uh, for Azure is able to read from those uh, areas. So you can say you have this ginormous spreadsheet. You can totally upload it to blob storage. You can have uh, machine learning uh, for Azure sort of suck it in using a reader. The other thing that's really cool is you can use a reader to pull data directly from an OData feed. So say you have on-prem data that you want to do learning on, you can expose that via an OData feed. I think it's secure as well. You can put your credentials in there. So it, it will read just re- regular standard OData. I'm not familiar with OData, but I'm sure it has protocols for security. Right. You can read that data directly from your premises, and uh, machine learning for Azure will suck that data in. And now you, you're in a position to say, okay, now we can make some predictions about who will default and who won't, and you can use window. Uh, you can use machine learning for Azure to suck that data in using a reader. 
Awesome. That's the first thing. The second thing is you can just upload a, a CSV file or a TSV file or ARF or any. There's a number of formats that you can sort of just upload, and they would they will be stored in your uh, in your uh, particular workspace. And so that's how you get data in. Again, the problem being we want to know who defaults and who doesn't. So there's a good right. number of ways to sort of suck data in. Okay. Okay, so now that you have this data of your loans that you've done out, you have a series, uh, you have a set of data. But let's say, for example, your personnel were really good about entering income at the end, but at the beginning they weren't really trained well and they didn't enter income into the column. Mm. What do we do with that data that's in there? It's still useful. We want to use it for the model. How do we fix it? Well, now that you've brought it into machine learning for Azure, you can use modules such as missing values scrubber or project columns to either take those columns out because they're not useful, or you can replace the values that are missing with a standard value like a zero or the median income or the average income or the mode of the income so that you can actually extract value out, out of even those rows that aren't in there. Okay. And this is the thing that always worries me on any of these things is the data is not perfect. All sample data always seems to be perfect, but real data is grubby. And you're trying to fight back from lying to yourself. Yeah. And again, I I need to take a step back because when we're talking about machine learning, it's a science. And when people say, I've got this down to a science, I don't think it means what they think it means. Science is all about making a guess and then testing it. Right, that's the method of science, the scientific method. Make a guess. If you're in college, read a lot of Wikipedia, and then <laughs> go back and see if that actually works. And you do a lot of tests. And so I have to warn people: this is not a silver bullet. You're going to have to go in there and tweak these things. You might be using the wrong column, or you might be adding a missing value that's not very good. Maybe you're using the average and you should just be putting in the mode, which is a little bit different, similar, but different. So you got to tweak this. In fact, there was it was funny. If you go to my new ML project on GitHub, you'll see that a gentleman uh, submitted uh, an issue. He said, hey, this doesn't work. And I, 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 was, I couldn't respond right away. I was like, oh man, I got to go in there and see what I did wrong because I think it was a decision tree algorithm. Uh, and he, he emails, he goes back like a couple hours later, he says, oh, I tweaked something and now it always works. And I was like, oh, good. So this is the right thing. It's, it's not going to work perfect every time. And so right. the difference here with, with, uh, machine learning on Azure is you have more resources as far as memory and computational resources to test stuff out. And it's pretty fast. It's surprising. But it, it is, you know, the, the fear here is when you do these crazy math things that you don't necessarily understand and it's pulling out results, you want to try and validate them. Like, is this actually true what we're seeing here? And I think that's the hardest part when you're doing this yourself is, are we seeing truth or are we creating fictions with data? That's a really good observation. In fact, uh, machine learning on Azure does provide modules to help you with that. Let me give you an example. There's a module called Split. Once you've, say you, you've brought in your data set, which is your mortgage data, say you've added the module for missing values scrubber, and, and say you've added another module to move it, to pull columns out that you think are just worthless. Like for example, 
I don't know what would be a worthless column. I was going to say age, but I think age is a fairly good indication of whether you'll default or not, I, I, is my guess. So say you, you pull out a column that's unnecessary. How do we actually train a model so that it's not overfit? Let me explain what I mean by overfitting. Overfitting is this. Your particular model that you've generated to do prediction on your mortgage stuff might do really well on the data that you've trained it on. Right. But then you give it new data that it's never seen, and it's like, oh, it's it's really horrible at it. Well, you've overfit your data to you've overfit your model to the data that's already there. So how do you how do you prevent that? So not only do you have the problem of how well is this doing, it might be deceptively doing really well on the data you gave it. So machine learning on Azure has a way to compensate for that. And it's not just machine learning on Azure, it's just a standard practice. What you want to do is you want to split your data. And, and sometimes you use a, I'll talk about the simple case, and then I'll talk about the more complicated case after. Mm -hmm. When you split your data, you might do this. You might say, I'm going to use 80% of my data. I'm going to choose randomly 80% of my data to train the model. And then I'm going to use the balance 20% to test it. That prevents overfitting, right? All right. Because you're you're holding out data, and so not only will you will you create a model, but you'll be able to test your model on the twenty percent of the data that you pulled out, and that really gives you a good indication of uh, how well the model is doing. So that's the simple case. There's also something called cross validation, which you can do on uh, machine learning on Azure. It's just a module you drop in. Now what you do is instead of doing an 80-20 split, let's pretend you're doing cross-validation. You, you get 20% chunks, and then you take a random 20%, hold that out, then you run the model. Then you put that 20% back and take a different 20% out, and then you run the model again. And so you're running the model tons of times, but you're holding out different segments of the data each time you run it. That's called cross-validation. So now you're able to get a sense of, okay, is my model doing well? And so to, to, do, to, to see if your model is doing well on machine learning on Azure, you have something called the score module, a score model module. You drop that on, you bring the results, and then you, you, there's sort of like a little hook. So imagine like you have a rectangle and, 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 and a picture of the Windows workflow, if you haven't uh, pictured that, or, or maybe even picture like a org chart. An org chart is a good right. way to think of it. But each 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 module has sort of inputs and outputs. On a score model uh, module, you drag the model that you've trained as an input, and then you drag the actual 20% that you held out into the uh, into the other input, and then you say score it. And so now you can you can get a sense for if you've overfit the data, you can you can not, uh, prevent that by doing splitting and then cross validation, and then you can do actual scoring on the on the model using the score model. And so, to answer your question, uh, Richard, you can definitely get a good sense of how your model is doing by using these modules inside of machine learning on Azure. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm all about I'm all about answering questions. I mean, this is a really good question. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to split. Split? That's it. That's all I got. That's it. Just split. Oh, time to split. Just split and cross train. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
Somebody help me. Very Sam, simple. Help me. It's, it sounds like you're doing a new workout program <laughs> not, almost. Not me. No, no, no. That's my daughter <laughs> you're talking about. Anyway, it's time to give away a Sync Fusion Essential Studio package to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, say goodbye to boring enterprise apps. Sync Fusion Essential Studio offers more than 500 controls to help you build stunning applications. Just released an amazing set of ASP.NET controls, 100% powered by JavaScript. Download a free trial at SyncFusion.com today. And they've also published over 40 completely free eBooks on topics nice. ranging from Hadoop to Assembly. Each book written by a leading expert contains 100 pages of wholesome technical content with absolutely no promotional material, unlike this show. Head to SyncFusion.com slash ebooks to get your copy now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, buddy. Who's our winner? That was the joke. See? That, that was, was a joke. That, that was good. Now you, you know slid it in there. I'm actually funny today. Uh, today's <laughs> in win- my heart, I know I'm funny. Sir, in my heart, I know I'm funny. <laughs> today's winner is Raphael Michelli. Congratulations, Raphael. Golf clap. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Ooh. Raphael. And uh, he just won uh, Sync Fusion's Essential Studio, brand new sponsor to .NET Rocks. Nice. And uh, just if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we give away great stuff like this. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology handpicked by one lucky member picked at random of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to be a member to join. And Seth, of course, we ask all our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend today on technology, what would you buy? Oh, man. I am totally prepared for this one <laughs> because I have always wanted to learn to fly a plane. Oh. Yes. My, I have an Uncle Bob. Uh, my Uncle Bob one day was like, hey, Seth, let's go get your grandma. And I was like, well, she's in Reno and we were in Las Vegas. And he's like, <laughs> right. oh, we'll just get on my plane. It was a little, and he, we flew over there. He let me fly it too. It was fantastic. <laughs> and so ever since then, I've had an itch. And I was looking yesterday and I saw this system that you can buy that is a, like, it, it has software like Plane Axe. It comes with like the joysticks. It comes with everything to do flight simulation. And it's $5,050. Wow. Oh, yes. man. And does that it, get you a sport flight pilot license? I, I don't know, but I would have to get I would have to get those aviator sunglasses and wear them during the simulations. <laughs> right. Because I mean, I would totally love to do that. And it has it has three screens. And so it literally looks like you're looking out an airplane. And then it, it and then it has the joystick and then it has sort of the throttles and then it has this little touchpad below with all the instrumentation as if you were on the plane. I Seriously, I'm geeking out here. Wow. It's, wow. But I, I would have to throw in a fi- the $50, though. I just like that you're super excited to have a simulation of flying. You don't actually want to go flying. No, I do. But my wife would probably like it better if I practiced on a computer. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. She's just not going to be computer. your guinea pig. <laughs> she did Details. tell me. She did tell me. She said, Seth, you can totally do that. But please make sure you pay off our debt first right. and then get really good life insurance. <laughs> but yes, we, I don't need to pay off the debt. I'll just get insurance. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm going to go for the insurance route and then I'm going to start to see if I can do that flying. Well, and, and, you know, part of this is you have to tell your insurance carrier that you are a light uh, aircraft pilot. 
because uh, it, in, you know, on the actuarial tables, it increases your risk. Flying light aircraft is not a risk-free exercise. Great. Now I can't have her listen to the show. <laughs> I've ruined everything. Oh, thanks, Richard. Jeez. Bummer. Well, and the, and the lessons aren't the expensive part. They're just a few thousand dollars. It's the flight time you need. You know, yeah. in order to qualify for a full pilot's license, you need like 25, 30 hours of flying. And, uh, you know, they're a few hundred dollars an hour, depending on the aircraft. It is. I, I've costed it out. It's roughly ten to 15000 And then it's not the lessons. It's, again, you have to rent a plane and you have to yeah. go with someone. Because you have. there's a certain amount of hours where you have to go together to fly with the, with the instructor. And then there's some solo time as well. And you got to pay for the insurance of the plane for that little bit, you know. And then you got to pay for the guy to be with you or the gal to be with you that's flying. Uh, if... if uh, because you have to have her with you when when you're flying because she's the instructor. Mm. And so that's what really costs a lot. So, you know, you thought a boat was expensive. Yeah. You know, it's not expensive to buy a plane. You can buy a, a pretty decent plane for 15000 for the price of a used car. It's actually housing the plane and the gas that's expensive. Mm, and then yeah. keeping and, it And maintaining it because if you don't yeah. take good care of your plane, breakdowns on the side of the road are messy. Yeah, I, you've, you've seen those news where light plane rider lands on I-5 during congested traffic. I mean, that, that would be a problem. I mean, And it's right. also a good outcome because the usual outcome is all hands lost in light aircraft crashed into the trees. Yes. You're killing me, man. I, you can't <laughs> say this kind of stuff because my wife might listen to this. Well, you know, the light ones are sus- more susceptible to that kind of thing, aren't oh, they? Oh, for sure. They're not as safe. Well, we, it's there's a for a variety of reasons. The flight flying can be plenty safe, but it takes a lot of discipline. You know, there's a there's an army of people involved in keeping the safety up in a commercial aircraft, and then it comes down to pretty much one or two people when you're dealing with a light airplane. Mm. How diligent are you? How checklist centric are you? Wait a second, I'm talking about Seth Juarez. Good lord, <laughs> yeah, I'll he's just, just anal enough to stay alive in a light airplane. No love today, I, Seth. No love. No, right? I tell you. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Can we get back to the subject at, at hand here? Yes. Because sure. there's something you said in the first half of a number of times, which is this whole idea of using software to learn. And that, I think that's just got a sort of heebie-jeebie factor to it. You know what I mean? Like people are uncomfortable with this idea that I'm teaching software anything. What does it really mean? Like what's going on when the software learns? That's a really good question. And let me let me frame it like this. And let's just do the dumbest machine learning algorithm. And you're gonna you're gonna understand this so intuitively that you're gonna be blown away by how stupid this really is, right? Okay. <laughs> so let's just say we're back to the we're back to the mortgage thing, and we only have one column, which is your credit score, and then we have another column which says yes or no, whether they defaulted or not. Okay. Okay. Let's do this. Let's take the average of the credit score and let's find, well, let's do this. Let's take all the numbers, sort them even better, and then find the credit score number where those below or those above have mostly yeses and mostly noes. You see what I'm saying? We're just, we're sorting by credit scores and then we're picking a credit score and we're trying to find the best credit score that will say, okay, everyone below, I don't know. 500 almost always defaults and everyone above that almost always does not default. That is the dumbest machine learning algorithm 
But that's precisely what machine learning is doing, right? That's it's just finding a point where you can say with I don't know better than fifty percent confidence. If I if we go below four hundred on the credit score, you're most likely to default versus those that are above. Well, and in, in the, the most likely thing is tricky, right? Like now we get into the gray area of if I I want no defaults, what credit score does that look like? Mm. And yes. now I don't have enough customers to make a business. How much tolerance do you know? How, as I increase the number of customers, what's the risk? You know, am I making more money than it's costing me in defaults? And, and that's true. But again, we, I want to just go to the sort of the the bottom level at, at, at a sort of a fundamental level. Machine learning is is in that case, I'm only using one column and I'm using right. a, a dumb algorithm. But now what we do is let's add columns and let's do better algorithms. So when you're looking at the credit score, imagine that along a timeline. So you uh, on the left, you have zero. All the way to the right, you have, I don't know, what's the highest credit score? 800? Something okay. like that. Yeah. So, so now what you're doing is you're sort of picking a dot and you're saying if X is less than dot, return false, uh, return true, meaning that they'll default. If X is greater than or equal to dot, whatever the dot is, then return false. They won't default. Now, that's, that's called a linear separation. When you add another column to that, say you're doing credit score and income, income for the year, now you just have two axes, right? You have an X and a Y, and you have a number of points, and now you're finding a line to separate that. Do you see what I'm saying? Because, mm-hmm. right. because along a single line, a point is a linear separator. Along two axes, you have a line. Say you add another axis, like your age, so now you have age, income and credit score now you're in three space so you have points in three space to separate that you need a plane and then if you move to four space you need a cube and then into five space you need a hypercube to separate in six is six space it's also a hypercube because after after hypercube i guess they couldn't think of anything (laughs) super super ultra hypercube and so so now notice that that is just a linear separator. It's a dumb separator. What if you have everything is in a circle and everything outside of a circle? Now you can't do linear separation. So you have two choices, right? You can either create a different function that's not linear, or you can change the space of the data that's coming in. Here's an example for the changing the space. Say you have, say, say you're in two space again, and there is like a uh, picture a number of dots, right? Because this is what we're trying to separate. And inside of this circle, you have the red dots. And outside of this circle, you have sort of green dots. And the red is always the false ones and the green is always the true ones. Well, there's no line that will separate that. So what we do in, in order to make it so that you can actually compute a separator, because that's what machine learning is doing, is finding a separation. Right. Imagine taking the center of that circle Imagine it like it's on a sheet, uh, uh, like on your bed sheet. You pull that sheet up so that now you have like this cone structure, right? And notice that at the top of that cone, you're going to have the circle that's pulled up. So here's another beta w- way to visualize. Say you spilled your Dr. Pepper on your bed, mm. right? And there's this circle of Dr. Pepper. Pull the sheet up because you want to clean it the cheap way without doing anything. Pull the sheet up and then you just make one cut, right? Once you pull the sheet up. And then when you drop the sheet back down, what do you have left? Well, you have this hole because you cut out the the Dr. Pepper that spilled. 
Notice right. that what you've done is you've changed the input space so that now you can have a linear separation. And when you bring the input space back to its original space, now you have nonlinear separators in the original space. Those are called kernel methods or, for example, support vector machines. That's how you do separation, a nonlinear separation in a linear space. And you see what, what I'm saying? And, and the whole goal, the, we lost the big picture. What was the, the whole goal of this in the first place? The goal of this is uh, Richard said, well, that's kind of a dumb algorithm because it's not taking into account other things. Yeah, we just had a single dot. Now when we add more columns, we might have a line or a, a plane, but notice that the plane is not powerful enough to separate whether you're going to default or not. It might be a nonlinear separator. Uh, instead of using a linear separator, now you can use a nonlinear separator by transforming the input space to get a more powerful predictor. Right, Because the idea is, how does a machine actually learn? Well, I started with the lowest level, which is the dumb level, which is a single point. But now we want it to be smarter. How do we do that? Well, we mm. need to change how it separates. So you either change the input space or you change the function. So the first thing we're talking about is changing the input space. That's what support vector machines does. It sort of amplifies your input space and allows you to do complex separations in the new space and sort of project it down into the old space. It's pretty powerful. And can this model be used for just about any kind of prediction or is there a specific problem that it works better for? That, that's a really good question. Again, remember earlier I said it's a science and so you kind of don't know. It depends on your data. It also depends on how much data you have. And it also depends on whether or not you chose the right columns or the right features. And so you right. have to try it out. You know, one of the challenges of this looking from the content, I love the going to Azure because there's all this infrastructure already there, makes things really simple, but it's a big data problem. I got to get that data up there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, like I said, uh, it, for, for example, my library, if you want to use it locally, is restricted to how much RAM you have and how much processing power you have. Right. Uh, it's a problem. If you want to, if you want to scale up and do, I, I, I'll say big data. I mean, the majority of people do not have a big data problem, right? If your database can fit in your RAM, that's right. not a big data problem. Uh, it's a medium data problem. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> medium to small. I mean, I don't know. I don't uh, think but, you uh, can get a small anymore. You have to get a medium at least. Right. And so uh, I always like to say if you can fit your data in RAM, then – and I, I you can also say, I mean, 32 gigs of RAM is – you can get that much in a laptop. That's a lot of space. Right, right, and it's uh, a lot, now, a lot of potential there. When it sort of speaks to this idea of maybe I want to do experimentation uh, in Azure with this, but ultimately I could pull it back home. Uh, you could, but if you're using the model now, here's the thing: the, the the models that I do and the models that they do are a little bit different, right? Right. And so if you're if you're doing some some playground stuff on on Windows Azure for machine learning, if you bring your data back and do my models, I might make different assumptions that they made. Yes. And, and that's sort of, sort of key. And so the question really is, okay, now that I've made a model, how do I actually use it? Yeah. And so there's really, there's really two things that you can do. I mean, you can use my stuff and then use the models perfectly fine. I serialize my models out to XML or the Windows Azure approach to machine learning is actually really interesting because it's like, wait, I put all my data up there. I train all these models. 
it feels like I sort of have to take them down somehow to use them. But what they've done is actually really clever. If you go to your experiments on the score model module, the score model, what it does is it takes a model and just sort of scores it. You can actually right click on the inputs of score model and you can set it as a publish input and a publish output. For example, remember the score model as its input takes a model and then it takes some data to see how well that model does? Yeah. On the input side, you can right-click, like I said before, and set as an input. And on the output, you can right-click and set as the output. Then what you can do is after you run it, you can publish that input-output as a web service that lives in Azure. Now, wow. I, I like... That to me is really powerful because yeah. now you don't have to bring all the data back. You don't even have to bring the model back. It doesn't matter how complex the model is or what data it's using. You literally can now from your code, call that web service, give it something you want to score it on, and it will return you the scored value. And what the scored value means is in our case, it's you're going to give it all of the columns of a new customer that just filled out the, I want to apply for a mortgage. You send that up to the web service. The web service returns whether or not that particular person will default and how confident it is that they will default or not. That's pretty awesome, Seth. So what have you done with uh, the Azure stuff, if anything? Not yet. Mostly what I've done is I've sort of played around with it. I wanted to get a feeling for what what sort of the spirit of their intent is and how one would go about using it. And I spent it's only been previewed for like I sent an email to, to so they would let me preview it a little bit early. Uh, but there's so many people at Microsoft. I'm sure they were like, "Who's this Seth guy?" And so <laughs> I I've actually I got on there right when it came out. I think it was like not last Monday, but the Monday before. And I've sort of gone through, looked at their samples to get the spirit of what they're doing. And and what they're trying to do is they're really trying to be this sort of workspace. They've even found a way. They've even called it experiments. That's what they're calling them. And so you you in your home, if you're on your if you're in the uh, machine learning sort of Azure ML Studio there's a series of experiments that you run. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it your toolbox for running experiments, for testing your, your, your hypothesis. And then when you've got something that you feel is pretty good, you can publish it out with the power of Azure and sort of query back and forth the model that you've trained. And the thing that I've always told people is computers don't mind working overnight. They don't mind working over the weekend. Mm. You can get some pretty powerful models to, and then actually use them in your code. And so you can imagine going on to machine learning for Azure every night and saying, hey, um, run this and I'll use that model tomorrow. It's pretty. It's a pretty interesting. It's it's where I've always wanted to go with my particular machine learning library, but I just did not have the resources to do it. Right. Well, that, I also noticed that uh, they offer R, but I don't want to scare anybody with a new programming language. Is that optional, or it's just for experts? No, no. And let me, let me. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. There's tons of modules I haven't even talked about. Mm -hmm. Say, say for example, you you have your data, but you need to do like some. Uh, R is like Python. I never got into R. Most of my research was with Python, but they're very similar. Right. Uh, except that R has a more of a statistical bent. Say, say you want you bring in your data, and you figured out that that you want to do like some crazy function 
on the credit score, right? To, to, to normalize it somehow. But there's no module in there that will let you normalize it with a function that you want. What you can do is you can drag on execute our script. It will take your data and then you can run a function on that. So it's like the, it's the ultimate customize this thing, this data. And so all it is, is you can drag our, you can drag an R script on there, put as an input your, or your mortgage data. And then you can go in there and say, okay, uh, here's this column. I want to run a function on each, each row. And so that's what the execute R script. There's also other things like statistical functions. Say you just want to see your distribution of data, what the median mode or what the stand, uh, how many standard deviations, what, what the standard deviations are or, or variance. It, it will it will allow you to do all that stuff. So you, you could just do exploratory type analysis on your data inside of machine learning for Azure. And in the end, it almost feels like this thing will generate an API for me so that I don't need to think about the machine learning part when I actually want to use it in my app. That is correct. And, and, and the, that's the cool thing. So, so you can hire like a data scientist and, and sh what she can do is she can go in there and she can upload the data set. She can train the model. She can do whatever it is to, to, to sort of test her hypothesis and then get the actual model. She can then expose that model to developers and the developers can just use that model without even knowing how or why they arrived to those particular assumptions, but know that it works. And nice. it's pretty powerful. Sold. Yep. I know. Easy. I'm actually, I'm actually pretty excited to start, to start playing with it. And uh, there, now I, I will say I, I'm pretty open to this stuff. I, someone emailed me a while back and we're like, Hey, they're, they're doing this thing. They're kind of jumping on your turf. There is no such thing as turf when it comes to these things. I would say that my stuff is good if you want to run the stuff locally, but if you don't care where your data is, seriously, you should go with, with machine learning for Windows Azure. I'll also tell you this, in, in September, I think September 25th, Azure Conf will happen, and I'm actually going to be demoing this stuff live uh, to show people how this stuff works in Azure Conf. They invited me to speak there, so I'm pretty excited. So this should, this should be sometime in the future. Uh, I think it's September 25th is when it's happening. But if, if you're listening to this later after September 25th, there should be a live recording of me demoing this stuff on Channel 9. Cool. Yeah, pretty awesome. excited. Well, there you go. Uh, we'll see you very soon, I'm sure, Seth. And uh, thanks a lot. No. This is great. No problem. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.